This is Game Designed Unboxed, inspiration to publication on the No Direction Network. Danielle, Denise, and Ben interview tabletop designers on the games they've made. Together, they unbox how a game went from inspiration to publication. Thank you for joining me, Danielle, Denise, and Ben for Game Design Unbox, Inspiration to Publication, Episode 8, The Networks. Today, we are joined by Gil Hova, owner of Formal Ferret Games and designer of The Networks, Network Rivals, High Rise, Wordsy, and others, not to mention the other half of that co-host team of the podcast Ludology, as well as one of the founders of the podcast Breaking Into Board Games. Speaking of which, what got you into the gaming industry? I'd always wanted to be a video game designer, uh, even as a kid. So in my early 20s, I decided if I'm going to learn good video game design, I should start with a board game, with you know, making board games. And uh, board game design would teach me good video game design. Uh, so that meant that I had to start playing board games. And I started exploring the world of board games. And I found out I liked board games better than video games. And uh, so I stopped playing video games, uh, went whole hog into playing and trying to design board games. And here we are. And then what brought you into design? I mean, I'd always wanted to be a designer. So that kind of went hand in hand. You know, it was always sort of in my head to like be a designer. I just switched my focus from video games to board games. Definitely makes sense. I mean, what part of design attracted you to wanting to do it? I think it's the creativity, uh, partially. Uh, I think it's also like I was a creative writing major in college and I really liked kind of setting up the various conflicts and it was really more the, the plot structures. Like I wanted to, I had these like really ornate plot structures that I'd set up and then I wouldn't have the patience to actually write the darn things. Uh, so I think just setting that up, setting up that structure uh, is what appealed to me. And that's really what a lot of game design is, except instead of setting up a plot, you're setting up a bunch of incentives uh, for people to uh, to go through and to hopefully be entertained by or find a meaningful experience in. And that's really what game design is in a nutshell. So uh, I feel like that appealed to me, you know, <coughs> you know, the whole idea of um, starting something that you don't know how it's going to end, I think is a very appealing thing for a lot of people. So that's for me, that's one of the things I really like about games is you don't really know what's going to happen. Uh, so I think overall, all those things together really got me into game design. And I think what's kept me is I feel like I'm better at game design than anything else I've tried. You know, I've tried to, writing stories. I've tried making music. Uh, and I'm okay at those, but I'm far better at game design. Well, I can definitely uh, attest to both enjoying and getting a lot of entertainment out of playing your games, as well as being really uh, just impressed by the design and structure, particularly with the networks. Uh, and I'm wondering if we could dive a little deeper into uh, the networks, if you could share a little bit just about how to play, uh, kind of introduce our listeners if they haven't had a chance yet. Sure. The Networks is a game for one to five players about running your own TV network uh, back in a time where time slots made a difference. Uh, they still make a bit of a difference these days, but not as much as they used to. Uh, but the idea is it is a drafting game where there's a bunch of cards out on the table. Some are shows, some are stars, some are ads, and there's uh, 
few other things, but that's like the crux of it. Uh, the players all have money uh, and they have to spend money to buy shows. But in order to buy shows, you might need stars and or ads depending on the different shows. Now, stars also cost money. So you have to spend money on stars. You have to spend money on shows. But better stars give you more viewers. And it's most viewers that wins. Viewers are effectively victory points. In the meantime, ads also give you money. I'm sorry, just let me rephrase that. In the meantime, ads give you money instead of costing money, but ads generally don't give you viewers with a few exceptions. So uh, that's sort of the struggle that you have is uh, you can get money by getting ads, but uh, that's uh, a time that you're spending that you're not working on getting viewers. Um, and then there is another kind of card you can get that's called a network card that's like a power card. So it gives you some special powers in the game. Um, there's also a decision to of when to drop out for the season. There are five seasons of the game that's effectively um, – like the there's each the game is split into fifths. I don't want to call them rounds because they're not really rounds. Uh, but um, like at the end of each season, you calculate how valuable your network is in terms of viewers and whether you gained or lost money, and then you move on to the next season. And your shows and stars all age. Uh, they generally get worse as season as the show as as the game goes along. Your shows and stars get worse, and then you have to replace them with new stars and new ads and so on. And that's a lot of the game because on each turn you can only do one thing: get a show or get a star or get an ad, etc. So there's some really difficult decisions in that. You might be able to get um, a show and put on one of your okay stars now, or you can grab that really nice star and then wait for your next turn, and hopefully the show will still be there. So there's a lot of tricky little decisions that you have to make in the game, um, and I'm really proud of the way that it um, marries this um, uh, really interesting gameplay with some really good humor. There's a lot of... Uh, parodies that I put into the game, a lot of humor that I snuck into the game. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that people first enjoy. Like when I think that's one of the things that people enjoy when they first start playing the game is uh, that the game's actually pretty uh, funny and pretty charismatic. Yes, it is. One of my favorite things is going through and reading the cards. Uh, and I've heard that from so many people as well. I know. And the illustrations really do pair well with the feeling and the text that you put on there. Yeah, that was that was important to, to us to for the game just to feel right, you know, and I think for this, I, I think for this game, just having all that charisma really, really helps um, kind of kick down the door and make people enjoy the game that much more. As one of the people who does enjoy the game more uh, for those reasons, Gil, I have to thank you. Yeah, absolutely right. <laughs> Just what Danielle and Denise have been saying, uh, super fun. And that's absolutely what gets people to the table. I know uh, the first time that I played it, I think this is actually where we met Gil, was over at a uh, Geekway to the West. And you had been kind of wandering a bit, and I was playing it for the first time, and, and you st stopped by for a few minutes to kind of explain, you know, how, how the turns worked and everything like that, and uh, that was a pretty awesome memory. Awesome. So uh, along with that, you know, we talked about, or well, you talked about sort of different hobbies and interests, music and writing, for instance, specifically, I suppose, uh, with the theme what inspired you about the networks? You have never tried to run your own network, have you, Gil? <laughs> no, I haven't. Okay. <laughs> I, I mean, I had a Twitch channel for a short time, but that's hardly the same thing. Eh, kind of the same thing nowadays. I mean, a YouTuber can make just as much as a, I don't know, reality TV star. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a hard living doing YouTube stuff, but um, 
I, I the, the the Twitch thing just didn't catch on, and it was a lot of time for not a lot of reward. Uh, but uh, Ben, to answer your question, um, the interesting thing about this game is that it's mechanism first, which surprises a lot of designers uh, who think that I started with the theme. Uh, and I think it goes to show that I don't like people ask, should you start with mechanism, should or should or should you start with theme? And I don't think that's really a meaningful um thing to worry about i think you start with something and you work in a lot of cases depending on the game you work towards the join you know you work towards a unified experience mm -hmm. uh jeff engelstein you know who uh helps out with ludology he's one of the uh founding members of ludology and he still contributes game texts every every month or so uh jeff yeah. has a great uh thing that he does where he when he starts a game design he writes out a document uh, that details what the experience is going to be. Like, how does he want his players to feel? And from then on, he's got a uh, a document that he can refer to. He's got a stake in the ground. So every time he has a playtest suggestion, every time he has a new idea, he sees, does this, does this work with my intended experience? And for a game like the Networks, <coughs> for a game like the Networks, I wanted the... Um, the theme and the mechanism to match really closely. So once we, uh, a couple of years into the game design, once I got the suggestion that I, I needed a theme on the game, uh, I put the theme in and then I had a couple more years where I spent some time trying to fold um, the mechanisms into the theme. And that process took a while, but it actually fit really well. And um, I'm really happy with how it worked. Perfect. And what kind of changes did you make to the game while playtesting and developing it? There is very little left from the very first prototype. Uh, I'm very, very hard on my prototypes, and I usually change things extremely aggressively. Um, this is one of the reasons why I don't work with co-designers, because... I want to make big, radical changes, especially early, and I don't feel comfortable putting another designer through that. Like, I don't want unanimous consent to throw this mechanism out. I want to just throw the mechanism out and try something else. So, <laughs> so yeah. were you that kid that did not play well in the playground? Yeah, I, I, I don't. Yeah, that's just, it's just how I work, you know? So um, the Networks originally was an auction game called MacGuffin Market. Uh, the the idea was I had this auction. I've talked about this auction on Ludology and other podcasts. This is sort of my white whale is this auction system that has a really cool mechanism and it just doesn't work. Uh, it, the, the idea is um, that for however many players there are, there's enough room for enough players to comfortably participate in the auction minus one. So one player is always going to have to raise... Uh, the auction bid uh, in order to stay in the auction, which puts another person in the dust. And then that person has to raise the bid and so on. And that in theory makes all sorts of funny, hilarious, memorable moments in practice. It doesn't. Uh, and there's all sorts of seams and problems that the auction has. And honestly, I tried to implement it one last time with high rise uh, wound up taking the auction mechanism out. But I think yeah. there's a mechanism in the game uh, that awards a uh, bonus, pieces if you're the first to pass a moment uh fat pass a pass an area on the board but there's only enough bonuses for all but one player so i feel like i finally got that feeling in a game even though i didn't get that mechanism in the game so i feel like i've exercised that ghost uh but mcguffin market uh 
I because I was having problems with the auction mechanism, I'm like, okay, well, let me try doing it totally themeless because people are tripping on the theme. Uh, so I tried it totally themeless, but it was too complex. Uh, people needed some theme to work with it, and that's when it became a TV-themed game. Then I got the bit of feedback that the auction didn't work with the theme, which was exactly the same bit of feedback that I'd gotten previously uh, with my game Battle Merchants, which had originally been an auction mechanism with that auction. So um, I finally kicked that auction to the curb. Uh, it worked fine without the auction mechanism, and uh, that's like an example of of how much the game changed from its original start. Like the auction mechanism is gone. Um, the thematic trappings are completely different. Pretty much the only thing that has sort of stayed the same is you're trying to get these big things, which turned out to be shows. You're trying to put the little things on the big shit, big things, which turned out to be stars and ads. Um, yeah. And uh, that's pretty much it. That's like, that's the only thing that really survived in the game. Wow. I can't believe you cut away and changed. I mean, that's awesome, though. Like, it shows that playtesting and developing, like, it, it means something. You need to do it. Yeah, yeah. And I think you, early on, when you're first working on a game design, I think you really need to take no prisoners and and be brutal. Like, look for, but that really only works if you have an idea of what you're doing like what you, what you want to design towards. And I feel like I've gotten better at this. Like High Rise only took, I think, a year or two to put, to, like two years really, to put together. And one year was with that auction mechanism. And the second year was without the auction mechanism. Now I'm talking calendar time, which isn't that helpful because uh, rate is important also. Uh, with High Rise, I was play testing it twice a week. So I had a pretty good... Um, uh, cadence on it, pretty good rhythm on it. Uh, I was iterating on it very, very quickly. So uh, that gave me the luxury to, okay, try this. Okay, try this. Okay, try this. And, you know, I can always go backwards because I, I try to save all my different versions of the various games. Uh, but I, if you're new to game design and you make like really aggressive changes early on, um, it's possible you might get stuck in infinite design limbo if you don't know what you're trying to work on. Like if somebody suggested that high rise become a party game and then I tried making it a party game at that point, I'd be lost in the woods. But you know, I would say, no, that's not really the feeling I'm going for having some of the, those design principles, some of those like experience points that Je Jeff Engelstein mentions. Um, I think they're really important when you're working on a game for reasons just like that. For sure. Gil, when it comes to playtesting the networks, uh, do you, Recall? Do you recall how often it was that you were getting it to the table and uh, with whom maybe? I know that you are quite active uh, over on the East Coast, so I wasn't sure if you'd be able to share with us a little bit kind of uh, what that looked like, um, whether it was groups or meetups, etc. Sure. So um, at the start, I was playtesting once a month, um, which I don't think is a good cadence for playtesting. Um I started the design of the game probably around 2010. So around 2014, um, that's when I started getting much more serious about game design. And that's when I pushed my game design group. I wasn't running it at the time, uh, but I pushed them to start meeting weekly instead of monthly. Um, and then yeah. that's when we, we started iterating much more quickly. And I think we started getting some really good designs out of the group. Um, I mean, we've been getting good designs before, but the weekly cadence is just really, really good. Um, and then once I took over, we expanded to twice a week, and that was like strapping yourself in a rocket. That was amazing. Um, a lot of my playtests are with, uh, well, 
let me rephrase. Before the pandemic, a lot of the, my play tests were with a New York City group. I'd say maybe 75% of them are, uh, which is good in a lot of ways in that you get people who get a real consistent deep dive into the game. But as any season game designer knows, it's also not so good because you don't want the same people looking at your game over and over. Now, the group is big enough that, you know, it wouldn't always be exactly the same people. You know, it would be a pool of maybe 15, 20 people who would lay on eyes on the game, which, again, isn't bad. But at some point, I think I think that size of people is really good for an early prototype, especially if you have um, a good design direction that you're working towards. But when your prototype is fairly mature and it doesn't break anymore and it's fairly interesting, fairly meaningful, people are getting a lot out of playing it. I think that's when you really need to start opening it up and start showing it off at conventions, not in terms of marketing per se, but more in terms of testing, like getting people outside your play group, uh, getting people who are, um, who don't necessarily have the same playtest style to give it a try uh, and see what they think. And a lot of times they'll surface things that you never even thought of. Uh, so I go to a lot of conventions. I got to playtest a lot of conventions. Okay, let me rephrase that again. Before the pandemic, I went to a lot of conventions and <laughs> I would playtest a lot of conventions. Um, if you go to conventions like Unpub or Protospiel, those are great opportunities to meet with not just different people, but really experienced people who know what they're doing. Um, if I had a lighter game, it, this wasn't great for the networks, but for my lighter games, I would go to NYU uh, and they have play tests every Thursday. Now, granted, they're with people who are more into video games than board games, but a lot of yeah. times they can be persuaded to play a quick board game. Uh, but it has to be quick because uh, it's only like a two hour event. And for people used to board game play testing, two hours is ridiculously short for a play test thing. It's fine for video games to play like a little bit of a short video game and get an idea, but not so good for a board game, which needs a little more time to breathe. Uh, so, you know, between those things, um, then occasionally going to game groups, trying it out at, at there. And again, when you go to game groups, you don't want to go to a game group with a new game, with a new prototype. You don't want something that's like raw and brand new and still has a lot of sharp edges, uh, like unplanned sharp edges, not not co-whirly, this is part of the design sharp edges. Um, you want something that you know is going to play the way that you expect it to. And kind of has your playtest group seal of approval. You know, only then do you want to take it to an outside group because otherwise they'll see you and they'll be like, oh, that's the person with that lousy game. Yeah, I'm not playing another prototype from them. Uh, Ouch. So you, yeah, th I speak from experience here. So you want to be very careful when you go to uh, outside groups that don't necessarily play prototypes uh, because they're doing you a real favor by playing a prototype instead of a published game. You want to make sure it's worth their while. <sighs> I guess you're not wrong. Yeah, I'm used to only going to those straight up board game meetups, but I've never tried to walk into a video game meetup and be like, hey, play my board game. <laughs> yeah. So I'm uh, interested in what made you decide to start formal ferret games and self-publish? Was that part of the process as you were playtesting and the game was coming together? Or uh, yeah, what influenced you to make that choice? So even I found it formal fair in 2014, and even in 2013, I was like, "No way, I'm starting a game company. That's that's such a losing proposition. It's such a hard thing to do." Uh, yeah. but things started to change my mind. Um, I think one thing that started to change my mind was, um, you know, I had two games that were published and. They were okay, but I feel like uh, with a little more time and attention from the publisher, 
uh, it, they could have been received a little better. They could have been presented a little better. Um, I mean, publishers have so many games, so many balls in the air. A lot of times what they'll do is they'll release a bunch of games in a year and then they'll only put attention onto what seems to stick, uh, which actually is quite a good strategy if you're a publisher. But if you're looking at it from the designer point of view, you know, it's not so good, especially if your intention is to make a game that will last, uh, which was certainly my intention. Uh, so I started to realize that if I was going to have any success, I was going to have to do this myself. Um, then realizing that there were tools in place as of 2014 that weren't in place as of 20 in 2010, things like Kickstarter. So I wouldn't need all the capital up front uh, things like fulfillment services. That's a biggie. Cause I live in a New York city area apartment, uh, one bedroom, uh, second floor, tiny staircase. You're not fitting a pallet there. So, I, I I mean, I'm not going to be fulfilling games myself. I need someone to do it for me. But now that there's fulfillment services, that works a lot better also. Uh, manufacturers are a lot better about taking a lot of the really difficult decisions away from you. Logistics yeah. companies are very used to sending board games at this point. Like they know exactly what to do. Uh, the logistics company I use is called OTX. Um, and a logistics company is the company that's responsible for making sure a game gets from your plant to your warehouse. Like they're the ones who make sure it gets stacked onto those big cargo ships. Uh, this is not a trivial step in the process. This is a really important step in the process with a lot of forms uh, with a lot of areas to fill out and if you screw one of those areas up your games come in a flat pancake instead of in a 3d box so you want to be really careful about that and uh, best to leave it to someone who knows what they're doing which is uh, why i use a company like otx um so considering that there are all these resources that i could use it didn't seem quite so daunting um and uh, the third thing, the last thing was uh, I was working uh, at a, an office job at the time and things weren't going great. Uh, there was starting to be a little disillusionment on both sides. And I was starting to think, you know, how much better would I be at game design if I did it all the time rather than just nights and weekends? So uh, it really started seducing me. And in 2014, I made the split. I left my company. I started my uh, game company. The idea was I was going to work part-time on odd jobs um, while I did Formal Ferret in the background. Um, strangely enough, uh, Formal Ferret was far more successful than my search for odd jobs. Like those oh, yeah. always wound up like falling apart, whereas Formal Ferret was like, oh, I'm doing better. I'm doing better. I'm doing better, which is so weird. And uh, I'm thankful for it, but not at all what I expected. Only now in early 2021, like as of late 2020, did I finally start getting steady odd job work to help get a solid income to supplement my formal ferret income. But uh, it, it was really hard for a while. Like there were moments where um, I was only able to eat because I got an order for some games on Shopify and like, oh, good, I got some money. Now I can go to the grocery store and buy dinner. Uh, so, you know, it can be really tight at times, but um, things are a lot better now and I'm, I'm very thankful for it. Oh, yeah, that is incredible. Oh, my goodness. And is that why you went the Kickstarter route? Just because it's one of those things that if you fund, you get all that extra cash? Like, what was the thought process of using that versus like Indiegogo or just putting your own money towards your games? Oh, I didn't have any money. I had some, <laughs> I had some money. Like, I could, in theory, uh, have emptied my retirement account uh, early and uh, put a bunch of money towards games. But 
What Kickstarter also does is it's a marketing platform and it lets people know. And there's an audience on Kickstarter that's excited to try and to hear about your game and they want to be the first to get it and they want to get everything. Like that's a big part of Kickstarter culture. And that's why right now Kickstarter is um, is the place to go as opposed to like Indiegogo. Indiegogo doesn't have yeah. that scene and Kickstarter does. Uh, so that's that's why it was Kickstarter. Um, when I still, I still use Kickstarter and I still use it for the reason that I, I really need the capital, you know? Um, like I, uh, if, if I front the money elsewhere, the print run will be far smaller. Uh, it won't look as good. Whereas with Kickstarter, I get money appropriate to how many people are interested in the game. And that's really good Intel to know that, okay, here's my game. How are, are you interested in it? Um, and there is a lot of, Honestly, there's, you know, that that's sort of a dying breed. Like people don't use Kickstarter for that anymore. Like they use Kickstarter more as a pre-launch tool um, for a big game. And yeah. uh, the standard and expectation for how a Kickstarter should look and what a Kickstarter should stay or do has gotten so high that a publisher like me is kind of left um, in the dust. Like I have a much smaller presence on Kickstarter. My pages don't look as good because I can't afford to hire like a big team like the bigger mm -hmm. companies do. So uh, Kickstarter is changing a lot and it's not so much the place where a small publisher uh, like a one person shop like me can uh, make a huge bang. Now I'm lucky that uh, I have a big enough audience that I can get my games funded, but sometimes it's by the skin of my teeth. Yeah, honestly, I've noticed that Kickstarter is becoming a pre-order service, especially when you see these big companies like Simon who do not need to use it, and yet they keep popping up there. Yep, yep. it's a fantastic oh, marketing tool. I mean, you can't blame them. Uh, they, they, that's where their audience is, and it would be foolish of them to leave their audience. So, I mean, I totally understand why they do it, uh, but I, you know, I, I do wish that the culture of like the one-person Kickstarter company was still alive. You know. Yeah, it is hard. No, I just wanted to say, I think that's really insightful because I think a lot of folks, when they're just getting started, may look to Kickstarter and the ways that it's evolved as a publishing uh, tool uh, and go-between is, I think, really interesting. And I'm wondering if that is going to make it harder for first-time folks. Uh, what are the ways for them if they didn't have sort of the wherewithal or resources to be able to start uh, their own company. Um, yeah. You, you know what a good example is? Um, do you know the game Gladius uh, by Victoria Kanya and uh, Alex Boldy? Yep, yeah. I backed it. Yep, yep. <laughs> I think they're a great example because they were tireless. They pounded the pavement. Uh, they went to convention after convention. They got their game. Because the important thing is getting your game out there before the launch and building an enthusiastic audience before the launch. Uh, not just building a large mailing list, building an enthusiastic audience. Like, there's a real difference between the two. You don't want, like, it's not like, oh, okay, once you reach a thousand people on your mailing list, you're good to go. Because if all thousand people see your email and be like, meh then it's useless. But if you're, as opposed to a mailing list, like maybe you only have 500 people on your mailing list, but all 500 are really excited about your game and back at the first day, that's a completely different story. So I think you look at how they uh, like really tirelessly worked on promoting their game uh, and also worked on refining their game. Like they put a lot of play tests into that game. So uh, really working hard on that. I think that's a, that's an example of a way that you can do it. But all the while knowing that that hard work 
it's never a guarantee, right? You're, there's nothing that's going to guarantee success. You can do it all mm-hmm. right and you can still fail to meet your goal, uh, which is not the same as failing. Uh, failing to meet your goal is not always the final failure because a lot of times you'll get like a few hundred people signing up and then you'll cancel a project because it doesn't look like it will fund. But now you got 250 people who will be notified on day one when you relaunch and hopefully make some adjustments. Um, and they'll all be day one backers. They'll be far more motivated. That day one is so important with Kickstarter. Like that yeah. first day really determines your trajectory for the rest of your projects in a lot of cases. For me, I have a lot of enthusiastic, motivated backers who will back on day one and day two. But then for me, I get like a real trail off after that uh, because then it goes out to the wild and a lot of people don't know who I am. So, you know, I'm not Simon. I'm not one of these other bigger publishers. Um, and while my games are good looking, um, I, you know, I never quite have that juice that, 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 um, that social media presence and push, like they have people pushing social media 24 seven, like just, uh, hitting the bushes with a stick, trying to flush out more backers. And I don't, cause I, I want to keep my social media presence a little more honest and I don't want it to be like sell, sell, sell all the time. Yeah. Uh, so, um, I mean, these days right now, a lot of my social media is social justice, uh, but I feel like that's an important message that needs to get out far more important than, hey, buy my game, buy my game, buy my game, which gets a little annoying after a while. For sure. But it also makes us want to support you as a person too, which I, so. <laughs> I think is important. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I'd much rather back someone who I know has like a good head on their shoulders and supports the things that I believe in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, obviously I don't view that. Uh, I don't view promoting social justice as marketing. I mean, from a really cold, cynical perspective, technically it is, but ultimately it's more about doing the right thing, talking about the right thing, promoting the right thing. Um, but I want to go back to the point of a first timer on Kickstarter. It's just so important to make sure you have that energized base before you launch. It's not going to happen when you launch. You're not going to get like your family interested in the game, then click OK, your family backs the game, and then you get a wave. It doesn't happen that way. It, it almost never happens that way. I mean, there's exceptions, but don't yeah. count on being the exception. You know, count on getting that big mailing list. Um, that enthusiastic mailing list uh, and people excited about the game you're putting out. Well, speaking of things going out and, and getting excited about them, it's often a, an easy transition for designers to be thinking about expansion content as well, Gil. So do you know, can you remember when you decided that it was time for an expansion for the networks, like to come out with the rival networks and such? So... Um, the networks was, um, far more of a success than I expected. Um, to the point that for the first few printings, the pattern would be, we would get the game, like we'd get 3000 copies of the warehouse. The next day they'd all be gone. Like the distributors took them all and sold them all, which is an amazing place to be, but also is not an amazing place to be. Uh, there's one distributor who refused to pick my games up. I'm like, why? And and they, they wouldn't – finally, I cornered them at a convention like, why don't you pick up my games? They're like, because you don't have them in stock. You have stock for maybe like three days out of the year and then it's all gone. How can we order from you? And I'm like, <laughs> wow. okay, that makes sense. Um, so, I, you know, it's it's a champagne problem obviously. But, um, you know, when I start having problems like that, that's when I start looking to expansions to start um, pushing the game down the, 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 the – 
like pushing the, the the health of the game uh because expansions really keep the base game alive um i don't want to say that to sound cynical like the expansion is totally worthless on its own its only purpose is to prop the original game up um i feel like part of an expansion's job is to part uh prop the game up in terms of sales and keep the game alive make sure people know that this is a living game this is still something very supported by the publisher mm-hmm. um but um but at the same time, the expansion has to be playable on its own and interesting, and it has to bring something to the table. You know, it can't just be this thing that you just kind of um, – uh, I don't want to use a naughty word here uh, – just pushed out uh, without really thinking about it. Um, and Networks Executives, that was the big expansion uh, for the networks, and I'm really proud of that. I think that really brings the game to the next level. Uh, I think it's amazing to play with. Um, but the thing about the network's executives is uh, um, it it's asymmetric, which meant that it took a lot of playtesting to get it <laughs> right. Asymmetric <laughs> games are so hard to balance. Um, so there's 12 different factions, 12 different roles you can play. Uh, they're called executives, 12 different executives in the base game, plus two that were stretch goal executives. Uh, so that's a lot that you have to really work to play test and balance and um, and get right. Uh, but I um, I really enjoyed that challenge. Uh, it was it was a lot of fun to put together. And honestly, it's my favorite way of playing the networks is with executives. You know, I was actually going to ask, and then what made you decide to create the rival networks? Because I know the initial game, you could play two-player. Like, what brought on a two-player almost spin-off, or I guess in the same universe? Like, could you go into that? So, it, that's one where the original attempt, like the original experience, the final product didn't match up with the original experience, but it still turned out to be so good on its own. I was like, oh, this is good. Um so with the rival networks, I wanted to uh, fill a hole in my in my catalog. I wanted a version of the networks that I could sell at a place like Barnes and Noble um, that somebody could pick up and play in five minutes and not be too intimidated by. Because the networks is an intimidating game. Uh, it like if you're a gamer, you have no problem with it. But uh, as anyone who's tried to teach Seven Wonders to their family knows, uh, a game that's like a filler game for a gamer is not necessarily a game that's appropriate for general audiences. Uh, games with a lot of math, a lot of numbers, they just turn people's eyes into spirals. And uh, people have a hard time with it. So the Networks has a lot of open math in it. I think the theme helps with the open math because people kind of expect the game to be a little spreadsheety because of the subject matter. Like your Networks executives, of course you're going to be obsessing over numbers. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there's a lot of adding these numbers together that makes it a bit more work for the no- average non-gamer to play than um, than something simpler like uh, Ruby Cube, for example, or Monopoly, etc. Um, so I wanted the rival networks to address that to be more approachable and simpler to play. Uh, that didn't work out, but um, <laughs> uh, it, it wound up being, um, I'd say it's slightly simpler than the networks. I'd say, so networks is a, about a 2.6 on the BGG uh, complexity scale, 2.6 out of 5. I would yeah. say the rival networks is, it's closer to a 2, but it's not quite a 2. It's probably about a 2.2, you know, and I wanted mm-hmm. originally for it to be a 2 or under. That said, um, it wound up being such an interesting way to play the networks, um, and it provided so many interesting moments 
that I realized that, no, this is still going to stand on its own as a product. This is really super attractive. And it keeps the network, it keeps people knowing about the networks, like the networks as a, as a real thing. You can play the networks to players, but since I had to add some extra rules to make it work with two players, you know, people don't really like that. They, they want the game to play with, uh, minimal rules changes uh, with two players. Um, and Rival Networks kind of addresses that by being its own game that's completely suited for two players. Like, it's made very specifically for two. You can't play with any, any other player account. For sure. Yeah, no, I thought that was really interesting. What would you say would be your favorite expansion? Or I guess, actually, you know what card in the expansion, since they're asymmetric powers, do you have a favorite? Uh, you mean favorite executive? Yeah. Uh, I mean... I, you you never ask a designer to play favorites, right? Uh, you know what's your favorite? Who's your favorite kid? Um, but that said, uh, I have a soft spot for a um, um, for the executive called Telethon, uh, which I thought encapsulated the spirit of what I was going for really well. In that it's an executive who can't put ads on their shows because they're essentially public television. Um, but what they can do is once per season, they can run a telethon and ask the other players for money. And if the other players give them money, they give the other players um, what's called a, a sponsorship token. And a sponsorship token has a little image of a tote bag on it. Uh, so it's kind of like sponsoring a public TV network. Um, and the, the sponsorship tokens gives you special powers. Um, but if nobody sponsors you, you take the sponsorship token for yourself um, and uh, – the, the telethon executive actually can really use those sponsorship tokens. It really helps them. Uh, so it creates some really interesting patterns of play, which I enjoy. But I should also point out a couple of others that I enjoy. I really like the Beeb, uh, which is meant to be like BBC, uh, where you get a lot yeah. of money because you're a nationalized TV um, um, uh, network, but you also have a lot of bureaucracy. Uh, so your actions are limited by a rondelle. Um, so you can only move a couple of spaces on the rondelle. If you want to move more, you've got to sacrifice resources like any good Matt Gertz game. Um, so that's an interesting executive to play. Uh, there's another one, um, called, let's see what, what's, uh, there's an expansion one called gorilla, um, that, um, that gives you like a, a choice of really good, but limiting powers. Um, like either you, uh, you go last and get a bunch of money or you go first and spend a bunch of money in a round. Um, it's like, where does the 800 pound gorilla sit, etc. cetera. Um, I was thinking gorilla marketing, but that also works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's literally gorilla. Like is cause, and the art is you're literally gorilla. Um, there's another expansion one. That's a time traveler uh, who can um, mess with the timing of their shows. But every time they do, they put an anomaly in the star deck uh, that can help the other players. Um, so there's all sorts of interesting, like I found a lot of little seams, uh, that executives could play with. Um, and uh, that's one of the reasons why I'm really proud of it. Uh, it really changes the play patterns in interesting ways. Like telethon, for example, you'll notice not only does telethon change the game for telethon, telethon changes the game for everyone. Cause everyone can buy the sponsorship sponsorship token. Um, so yeah, that's an example of some of my favorite stuff in executives. You mentioned earlier that COVID has sort of impacted probably play testing, and I'm really interested in how the game is aging in the era of streaming and folks using either, you know, playing the game online, uh, play testing it, uh, or 
even using things like Tabletopia, et cetera, sort of how, how has COVID and the era of streaming sort of impacted its popularity uh, and how it's sort of being shared? Well, generally streaming games, um, when you see games being streamed, they're either new games or like the really huge evergreens, like the Catans, the Pandemics are really the, the, the older games that you see streamed. Uh, it's either that or like the really brand new games, which is understandable because that's what people want to see. You know, it's harder to be a streamer with a totally different game uh, unless people are tuning in for your shining personality, which let's face it, a lot of people are um, joining streamers for that reason. But in that case, they won't get as much exposure to your game. And there's always like streamers, there's, I'd say like a 50% chance they're going to get it wrong. They're going to get one rule wrong in your game uh, and totally screw something up. And you'll be there in the comments being like, no, that's not the way you play it. You know? Um, so the networks, like the base networks game generally doesn't get a lot of love on stream. Um, and that's just part of the biz, you know? Um, Rival networks, I think is going to get streamed a little more once it actually comes out. Um, and, uh, and High Rise, I was hoping to get streamed a little more, uh, but you know, you don't. I, I haven't seen it streaming a whole lot. So, you know, I'm kind of such a small publisher. There's not a lot of. I don't get a lot of streaming attention, which is yeah, you know, just them's the breaks, right? Um, and uh, hopefully, as as my new games come out this year, you'll see uh, you'll see more of my games out there. But uh, we'll see. Well, hey, just earlier in this discussion, you also mentioned that. No one's really watching cable television anymore. We are watching Netflix, Hulu, HBO Max. Oh my God, so many new streaming services in the past like two years have been popping up. With the networks being based, technically the theme is more cable television. Are you looking towards expansions that are going to be based off streaming or does that affect much of what's going on? So there's an executive and executives called Flix. And if you're the Flix executive, you don't care about time slots anymore. Uh, but if you replace a show, you get penalized if the new show is not the same genre as the old show. So, uh, Prego, it's already there. Boom. You got it covered. <laughs> nice. And so kind of, yeah, to unite those two things together, Gil, uh, now that, you know, the game's been out for about four or five years now, I think, maybe a little bit longer than that. Um What's the sort of gauge for how well it's doing? I mean, BGG, we, we talked about ratings and all these things like is it still good to you um since you're have so many kind of spin-offs and expansions uh in the pipeline we hope uh and at least at the very least already released uh do you know how people are playing it and if the game is still being received well absolutely like i'm still getting uh replacement card requests which is always <laughs> awesome. that's always good it means people just got the game and they're really excited to play it um we got um and, you know, people are still rating it on BGG. I don't, I actually don't read reviews. I don't read ratings, that sort of thing. I, I feel like uh, for my personality, it wouldn't go well. So um, yeah. I, I'm I'm really happy with how it's been received. It's obviously my biggest selling game. I've sold more copies of the networks than all my other games combined. Wow. Uh, but that said, uh, I think High Rise, uh, once the reprint comes in, uh, with the plastic buildings, uh, I think high rise and with conventions opening up and people like seeing it on the table and being like, right. Oh my God, what is that? That looks amazing. Um, 
that's what I just kind of what I designed High Rise for. And just as it came out, conventions went away, which is which is kind yeah. of an annoying thing. But I think that once High Rise comes out and people like get a really good look at it, I think High Rise has the poss- has the potential to start at least rivaling the networks, uh, if not uh, if not compete with it in terms of uh, of its popularity. Hey, well, that's great. And as far as the networks goes, do you know how long in total, and you can totally guess on this, it took you to go from the inspiration to the publication of the game? Oh, well, when it comes to inspiration, you I'm going to say from when it was MacGuffin Market, uh, that was six years of calendar time. Um, but that includes one year where I didn't play it at all. That was just after I got the bit of feedback to remove the auction mechanism, and I was so angry at the game that I was like, I'm just not going to test this. So, like, I'm I'm human, you know, I I, I have these these moments. But uh, thankfully, I got back to the game, I dusted it off, and I tried it with with no auction, I think I tried it once with no auction, but it was a half-hearted attempt that wasn't well thought through, and of course it played really badly. Uh, I think at that at the time you were scoring continuously; you weren't split into seasons. But once I tried it with seasons, um, where you get periodic payouts and scoring, that's when it started to get really tense and interesting. And that's when I realized, ah, okay, this is going to work. Yeah. So about six years. Yeah. But also keep in mind um, a couple more things. First off, um, at the start, I was only testing once a month. And at the end, I was testing twice a week. So uh, most of the work, I think, was towards the end as I was really starting to get more serious about game design. So while it was six years, those six years were not evenly distributed. Um, If I did it nowadays, it would probably be a year and a half to two years. Uh, The second thing is when I started, I was not really that great at game design. Um, I would say I'm probably worse than any of you at game design when when I started designing it in like 2010. Um, And uh, it really wasn't until 2014 that I think the light bulb went off and that I started realizing, um, oh, this is what game design is about. Uh, And I started realizing what I needed to do to really make my games work. Over... That entire time, the entirety of this process to bring the networks to life and bring Formal Ferret to to become your full time as well, Gil. Could you share with us maybe uh, one kind of not great memory, but also maybe one favorite part of the experience uh, with our listeners? Well, uh, I'd say the not great memory was the play test where. Uh, it was suggested that I remove the auction mechanism, and I was so upset about oh, that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that was makes probably sense. that was the low point. Like that was the walking around in the rain scene, uh, spurned and dejected uh, kind of montage with strings swelling in the background. Um, but I'd say one of the most thrilling moments. Um, there are a bunch of thrilling moments, but one of my favorite moments was uh, this was actually kind of late in the process, embarrassingly late. I would have to say. Um, I uh, went to a BGG con uh, and played with uh, two other people, asked them if they wanted to play my prototype. They said, sure. But I was trying a new rule, and that was the genre bonus rule. Uh, When I was designing the game for a long time, I did not have the genre bonus rule. And for those of you who haven't played yet, uh, there's a rule that when you get three shows of the same genre, you get a bonus. And when you get five shows of the same genre, you get a bonus. And I was really hesitant to put the rule in because I felt like the game was complex enough and didn't need another rule. 
Uh, but the genre bonus is such an important rule that I'm very embarrassed it wasn't in there originally because uh, there were two problems with the game. The first off was it felt very rinse, lather, repeat at the time because there was no um, overarching strategy you work towards. Um, like you just got a show and then you got another show, you got another show. And the genre bonus suddenly like you were – you have two sitcoms. There is a third sitcom. If you get it, you get a bonus. Now you have something to work towards. You know, you have an option that's better than the others, a, a re- something that's really interesting. Or you can go for something else that's more of a short-term goal, but that's where your decision is. Um, and the second one is it, that I gave the original pre-genre bonus version of the game, the rinse, lather, repeat feel, is that obviously you're, you, you're putting star- stars and ads in your green room. You're putting them on shows, which means your green room is now empty. So now you got to get stars and ads and you got to put them on your show and you just go through this loop over and over and over again. Um, but with a genre bonus, uh, the bonuses you get, you can get either ads and money or you can get stars. So now you're like making a shortcut through that loop, which is interesting. You know, now you're no longer just doing the same thing over and over. You do this one thing and you get this injection of material that you can immediately use and like make a real big jump on your next turn. And that's interesting. That explosiveness you really want in a game like this. And that was a big design lesson for me when I put that in. And uh, once I put the genre bonus in and we play tested it, it was like, oh my gosh, this is so much better. Like, mm-hmm. I can't believe how good the game is. Like this one change, like... And that was the moment where people finish the game instead of being like, yeah, that was good. I liked it. That was the moment it went from that to when's this going on Kickstarter? I, w- I want it. I want a copy of this. Like that was the moment. That was the thing that put it over the edge. And uh, so I really, I really needed it. Uh, by the way, one of the play testers uh, was uh, Chad Deshaun, who uh, a year later would found board game tables. So I knew him before he was big. Um, oh, no way. Yeah. And um, uh, I think uh, uh, close to that, uh, I'd say a year or two before then, I played um, uh, with uh, with my friend Paul Inkeo, who does a lot of playtesting for Vital Lacerda and does a lot of developments of his games. And so as you can tell, Paul is really, really sharp. Um, at the time, uh, I just made a change. Uh, used to be... This is so regressive. I'm so embarrassed even saying it. I had like male and female stars and shows had slots for male and female stars. And this is problematic on a whole number of levels, you know? Um, So I wasn't crazy about it. And somebody had suggested ads and I'm like, oh, of course. And so I removed the stupid binary gender thing from the game. Stars were just stars now and ads were ads. Uh, And that was a much better split. But at the time, you still paid for ads. Ads were just like another kind of star. Um, So Paul plays the game like this, and he's like, why do I have to pay for ads? Why don't ads give me money? Because if an ad gives me money, if I'm short on money, I don't have to just drop out of the round immediately. I can get some money, and I'm still doing interesting stuff. And I'm like, that is so smart on so many levels. Like, that works that makes the game work so many ways better than how it worked originally. And it was, it was just one of those, it was embarrassing that I didn't think of it first, you know? So um, I, I think, um, you know, those moments where the game made huge leaps of like, Oh, of course this should be that way. Like those are always my favorites. Yeah, man, you really did have some big changes there. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and like I said, like in twenty four before twenty fourteen, I really did not have a good sense of what game design was or what good game design was. Um, and I feel like 
um, my process is so much faster now because I feel like I'm more likely to be working towards something. That's great. And I really appreciate the nod too to how important the community is in oh, yes. giving you those aha moments, uh, helping to highlight, oh, go here, turn this. Uh, I just think that's really important. And even giving feedback around, you know, gender binary, like, wait, what, what's going on there? Just how important community is in this entire process. It's not a solo endeavor. Um, so thank you for, for sharing that. Thank you. Uh, uh, yeah. And uh, it's, it, it, to your point, it's, you don't, nobody does this alone. You know, even someone like Ryan Lockett, who, uh, you know, people are like, he does everything himself. Well, he really doesn't, you know, his wife does a lot of stuff. He's got a lot of people like he visibly does a lot of things. And obviously it's not a dig on Ryan. Ryan is amazing at what he does. His art is incredible. His game design skill is incredible. He's also a writer at BTG Con a few years ago. I had the booth next to him. I looked over and he's juggling. I'm like, crap, you do that too. <laughs> what can you do? Uh, so Ryan is absolutely amazing at what he does, but, uh, you know, he doesn't do it all himself. You know, even someone as much of a powerhouse as him uh, has help. So uh, while it seems like I do this myself, uh, my playtest community gives me so much help. Um, my partners, Panda and Quartermaster and PSI and OTX uh, and Envoy and all the people who help me, like they give me so much help. Nobody does this alone. That's great. You've already shared so much insight. So thank you. I'm wondering if there's one piece of advice you would give to designers, what would it be? And my Kickstarter backers, uh, my Kickstarter backers, I, I shouldn't forget them either. <laughs> oh, so yes. one, one piece of advice. Um, uh, so to, to any designer, yeah, to any designer uh, or a first-time designer, I think uh, a lot of folks are, you know, learning from those who have gone before. Mm -hmm. What what's something that you think would be really helpful for them to know uh, based on the experience you've had? Well, um, I, I talk about this in my game design 101 video, but um, I think there are times when you get lost and you're not sure what to do. You've got competing pieces of feedback and you're not sure which way to go. Um, my my like little rule of thumb is uh, my little mantra is incentivize interesting behavior. Ultimately, that is the role of any game designer, no matter what field you're working in. That's what you want to do is incentivize interesting behavior. And so if you're stuck with something, you know, go back to that and be like, what is the interesting behavior here? Like, uh, is it something that a person wants to experience? Is it an agonizing choice you want to push your players through? Is it something that you want your players to perform, like an action you want them to perform, like in a party game that will hopefully make the table laugh? Like, what is the interesting behavior you want to do? Okay, that's the behavior you want to do. What is the incentive you want to provide for the player to actually do that? And oh, once you get that together, that loop together, uh, that's really the core. Like that's what game design is all about. Um, and like that's, I think, one of the biggest pieces of advice I can give. That was very well spoken. Honestly, this is great advice. Thank and you. now I'm going to have to use it next time I'm playtesting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Thank you so much for joining us. Like, this was great. We got a lot out of you. And I feel like we could get more out of you in the future. Absolutely. I'd love to. 
Heck yeah. Well, here, I'm going to sign us out. So thank you for joining us for this episode of Game Design Unboxed, Inspiration to Publication, Episode 9, The Networks. Thank you again, Gil, for joining us. For anyone looking to find you, where can you be reached? On Twitter, I'm at Gilhova. That's one L and Gil, G-I-L-H-O-V-A. Uh, you can also find me there on Instagram, but I'm not very much an Instagram person. I don't really use that account for very much. Um, uh, well, I do use it to look at cute pictures of ferrets, but uh, that's... <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't Thanks, help you. Um, uh, so uh, I, I'm also on Facebook as Formal Ferret Games. Um, I'm trying to post there a little more and get a little more active there. Um, my website is formalferretgames.com, and you can learn all about my games by going over there. Awesome. And is there anything that you want to tell our audience that you're working on before we close out officially? The Rival Networks should be out in uh, – I'd say either late Q1 or early Q2 of 2021. Uh, look out for it. Um, High Rise is uh, up for pre-order, so please pre-order it now. And my role-playing game, Weird Stories, will be coming hopefully in mid to late 2021. Very cool. Well, awesome. Thanks for having us. And, or, well, I guess thanks for coming here. And this is your host, Danielle Reynolds. You can find me on Twitter at Creative DMR. Also, Creative, oh my God, DMR Creative Group for Facebook and then Token Gamer for Instagram. And then we also have Ben. I can be found on Facebook uh, as Ben Moy and also have a little design page called Your Friend Ben Moy Designs Board Games. And I'm Denise, and you can find me on Twitter at Year23. Yeah, and this is Game Design Unboxed. Thanks. This has been another episode of Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication. If you'd like to hear more great gaming podcasts, check out nodirectionpodcast.com. Join us next time.